So we come to Lamentations chapter 4 this morning. And the, uh, the quote from da- David Dixon, whom apparently I like to quote, is from uh, actually his comments on chapter 3, where uh, Jeremiah speaks of the tears, the great grief he had at seeing the affliction of his people. And uh, what David Dixon says there will be helpful, I think, uh, later on in our study today. So I'm going to read it. This was 17th century language from Scotland, so you may need a little translation. But uh, what he says is he tells us, he, Jeremiah, tells us that his grief is so extraordinary that tears ran down daily. For the public desolations of the Kirk, that's the church, in general, is a just cause of heavy grief to every particular man. So we have great reason to mourn for the desolations of the Kirk in Germany. It is so hard that they are denied the benefits of burial. So just a comment. He's referring to the Thirty Years' War. He's mentioned Heidelberg before and the tremendous suffering, especially of the Protestant believers there. Then he goes on, similar or heavier judgment will come to Scotland, except we repent and avert it. Else we be found false men, because Christ and his gospel is despised, and we have not mourned for our neighbor Kirks that are stricken. And the afflictions of Joseph have not gone near our heart. And there he refers to Amos 6.6. It's especially this sense that I want to come back to today that uh, when we do we reflect on the afflictions, not only like in our own lives or in our own congregation, but of the of the church of God, do we consider uh, what he's going into those afflictions of Joseph, here Amos referring to the northern kingdom, do those go near our heart? Uh, all right, so as I said today, we've, we've come to chapter four. We saw in chapter 3 of Lamentations in two studies that uh, hope shines in the middle of the chapter. But even by the end of the chapter, we're returning to the emphasis on the uh, the desolation and the suffering, especially of uh, the man in uh, Lamentations 3. Uh, chapter 4 starts with a dark description of suffering in Zion. Some people have said it's the darkest part of the whole book, and maybe you can even take that. Uh, literally because it starts out referring to the gold that glitters and to the uh, the precious stones and it refers to other uh, beautiful colors, ruddy and uh, so on. But in the end, the people are climbing through ash heaps. The rich people are climbing through ash heaps, scavenging for something to eat, and they're, they're covered with soot and black. So that's the way the, the chapter begins, but as we'll see, it ends also uh, with... Uh, striking uh, hope. So I'd like to read uh, Lamentations chapter 4. What I plan to do is read uh, verses 1 through 16, and then, uh, Lord willing, as we uh, see how much time we have, we'll we'll read the rest of the chapter also. But Lamentations chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. How has the gold become, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street, the precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. 
Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire, in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They become food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion, and it has devoured its foundations. The kings of the earth could, and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, go away, unclean, go away, go away, do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, they shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests, nor show favor to the elders. So I said, we'll, we'll stop the reading there for now. I said this uh, opening part of the chapter, especially the the part I just read, is uh, is very uh, dark. It is along the lines of the reversal that we saw in the first two chapters, the greatness of Zion compared to the current state. But here the emphasis is really uh, degradation. The people have become so degraded, and you can see that as in, uh, in what I just read. That, uh, that is sort of the, the characteristic of uh, this opening part of the chapter. As we go into it, I, I want to remind you since, okay, we're not, you know, we're not in that situation that seems very far from us. So as I, as I said in the invitation to the book, seems like a while ago, the, the first uh, lesson we had on the book, we should remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, especially in verse 11, when he talks about the history of the nation of Israel, not not this part, but in their wandering through the wilderness. He says, those th- these things were written for us. They weren't, and they weren't recorded for the purpose of those who are wandering through the wilderness. They were written for us, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So when we read these things, we should realize again that these are our fathers uh, in the faith. They suffered these things. And these are not distant things uh, as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Those who have seen the Messiah... We ought to take even more seriously uh, what we read here and uh, seek to apply it to ourselves. Uh, in terms of the sort of the you know, literary structure of the chapter, it's an acrostic in the same way the first two chapters were. So there are 22 verses. The first word of each of those verses begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's, however, shorter than the first two chapters in that it's, uh, it has two lines per verse as opposed to three lines per verse. And it, I know it's a little hard to see that in the way the verses are set out. So it's, it's basically two-thirds as long as the first two chapters. 
And the next chapter is actually, again, half as long as uh, this one. In terms of who's speaking, uh, verses 1 through 16 are Jeremiah as the the narrator. You see this uh, touching reference to my people in there. Again, he's he's not a... uh, a detached narrator. He is. He grieves over his people and he refers to them as my people. Verses 21 and 22, uh, sorry, verses 17 through 20, uh, the people speak. And then in verses 21 and 22, uh, Jeremiah deliver, delivers an oracle, which is a striking statement, both of God's judgment on the enemies and of the deliverance uh, that would come. So that's the background for the chapter. That's uh, sort of the way it's set up. And as I said, I'd like to look first at the uh, opening section that I read, verses uh, 1 through 16, which I I called the degradation of Zion. Okay, so I want to go through this uh, first uh, fairly quickly, talking about, you know, what what it is that we see, as I outlined it uh, here, the effect and the cause, because instead of cause and effect, because that's the order in which it's given. First, we see what has happened, and then uh, Jeremiah turns to tell us uh, why those things happen. So I want to go through that part and then uh, take some time to reflect on on our own uh, response to it and, and the, the messianic uh, connection that is made uh, in, the, in this part as well. So first, just uh, reading fairly quickly again through uh, the first part of this, you can see the reference in uh, verses uh, 1 and, uh, well, yeah, verses 1 and 2 to the the gold of the temple and the uh, stones of the sanctuary. So there were very many uh, precious stones uh, as well as the, the gold that was involved uh, in the construction of the temple. And the image is that all of that thing, all of those have been uh, scattered. Now, many commentators have point out, pointed out that uh, gold doesn't actually become dim. That's one of the reasons why gold is so valuable. But that's the literary effect of this. This, this gold is, is so degraded that it is even, as if it were possible, become dim. But then the, the metaphor seems to shift in from verse 1 to verse 2, or seems to be a metaphor involved in verse 2, because uh, the writer compares the precious sons of Zion to be valuable as fine gold. So is he talking about the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the stones, the looting of the temple, or is he talking about the people? And the answer, I think, is both. That's a false dichotomy. Um, He will go on then to talk about the effect on the precious sons of Zion. But it's a very striking thing that they are called the precious sons of Zion here. You think of the glory of the temple and yet Jeremiah, taking the divine uh, viewpoint here, says they are the precious sons of Zion. God looks on his people as precious, more precious than fine gold. And that only emphasizes the, uh, the degradation because then they are regarded, in the last part of verse 2, as uh, clay pots, as uh, something uh, unworthy of note. And the degradation then continues. And I said before, you know, in, in looking at this, there are absolutely awful things in this chapter and in the next chapter. We've we've seen some of them before. Uh, so, the infant, uh, the nursing infants have no food. The young children can find no food to eat. The wealthy are sitting on ash heaps, scavenging. The Nazarites are the 
could also be translated nobles. Uh, it's used in that way in a couple of places. Uh, their skin has become as dry wood. Otherwise, you know, very uh, so examples of health uh, are so degraded in that way. And then the compassionate women, and that's not sarcasm. They really are women who are compassionate normally. But they're reduced to boiling their children to have something to eat. As I said, we've talked about this before and made the connection with the curses of the covenant in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. So I'm going over that part pretty quickly. But degradation certainly is a fit description of the complete collapse of their society, if you want to focus that aspect of it, in what has happened to them. And that, that's summed up in, in some ways in the description in uh, verse 12, that they thought this city was impregnable, and even even the kings of the earth could not have believed that Jerusalem would be taken by an invading army. You can think of the history of God's protection uh, from Sennacherib in the time of Hezekiah and uh, other other events like that. How could this happen? It's this, again, this sense of shock and dismay at what has happened. The comparison, if anything, uh, gets even worse in uh, the reference to Sodom in um, verse, now I've lost my place, in, yeah, thank you, verse 6. Um, the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. So I put up just one reference in the New Testament um, uh, to that, but the comparison and the reference to Sodom is amazingly frequent throughout the Bible as an example of God pouring out his wrath on a wicked people. You know, it's easy for us to look at them in that way and to make that comparison as if we are somehow uh, better than they. But the point of verse 6 is that this happened to them because their sin was worse than the sin of Sodom, because they had the light of the covenant, because they had the knowledge of God, because they had amazing privileges. And the comparison to Sodom is brought out uh, again in another way, or the, the, the greatness of the judgment is brought out in another way in, um, in verse 9, because those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Sodom perished in an instant. These people are dying slowly of famine and plague. So again, the emphasis is uh, on the tremendous degradation, but here we're starting to see the, the reason in terms of the explanation of their sin. It goes on uh, then in verse 11 to say, the Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. When you take the foundations away, there's nothing left. That's, the again, the emphasis on degradation. Everything is wiped out. So it appears there's no future. We talked about this before in connection with the children. The children are dying. What hope is there possibly for any future? We'll come back to this, but even in verse 11, there is a hint of what's to come at the end of the chapter because it says the Lord has fulfilled his fury. It's striking that the word there, fulfilled, is the same word that's used uh, in chapter 3 about God's mercies. 
God's mercies are never fulfilled in that, in the sense that they run out. But his wrath has run out in the sense. They, the Lord has fulfilled his fury, but they have to look forward to God's mercy toward him. So, as I said, we'll have to come back and substantiate that uh, later in the context. But that's the, the degradation of the people. Now I want to think a little bit more about the, so that's the effect mainly, but now let's think a little bit more about the cause. And you can see it in verse 13, because. So why did this happen? Well, we've seen again and again that this happened because of God's work. It was God who uh, who used the Babylonians as the rod of his anger, to borrow from uh, Isaiah speaking about the Assyrians. But why was God's anger against them? Verse 13, it was because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. It was because of the sins of the religious leaders. That's the emphasis that's brought out here. And if you look at verse 16, also the elders are included. So I think not only thinking about the prophets and the priests, but the, the elders, the those who had uh, responsibility for the spiritual care of the people, and you might say even of the of the society. It was their sins that resulted in this destruction. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in other chapters. That's not to deny the cooperation of the people. But we should think about what uh, this means, and that's really what I want to do in in, uh, some further reflection on this chapter. They were the ones particularly targeted as uh, sinning against God and bringing on this judgment. And what did they do? Well, in the last part of verse 13, it says, they shed it, who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They were responsible for bloodshed. Now, there are different degrees, you might say, to which they could be held responsible. In the ultimate sense, they were responsible because they refused to warn the people of the coming judgment of God. They said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. So the judgment, the bloodshed at the hand of the Babylonians came because of the failure of the religious leaders to to call the people to repentance. Um, They were also involved in uh, ritual bloodshed in terms of the killing of children who were sacrificed to Molech. But thirdly, and maybe most importantly for the connection in the New Testament, they did literally shed the blood of the just. So if you look in, uh, put the reference up there in uh, Jeremiah 26, it is up there. Jeremiah 26, uh, Jeremiah is arrested for speaking, uh, for saying that judgment could come on the people. He's arrested and he's brought in. He's not actually killed, but then the story is given of another one, Uriah who was tried to escape to another land, but was brought back and killed. So they actually had the, on their hands the blood, literally, of the, the righteous, the blood of the just, and that they killed those who spoke against uh, their story that God would not bring judgment. The consequence that comes on the leaders themselves is then described in the verses that follow. So we've seen the utter degradation of Zion, but now what was it that they themselves received? And there's there's this sort of uh, irony that you expect in a, as a literary device. They wandered blind in the streets. These were the seers. 
the seers can't see. They wander blind in the street. This is the blind leading the blind, and they they uh, end up uh, suffering because of uh, what they have done to others. Uh, they have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They are compared in verse 15 to lepers, right? Go away, don't touch me, I am unclean. Only maybe the people were saying that about them. These were the holy people, the people who were sanctified and set apart to God. And now they are unholy, they are unclean. And they're treated as pariahs, even among the nations. At the end of verse 15, they, they go among the nations and no one wants them. Right? They blaspheme the name of God among the nations as if these are the religious people. These are the leaders of the nation of Zion. The ultimate condemnation, however, is really in verse 16. The face of the Lord that should shine on them, be gracious to them, as in the ironic benediction, instead scatters them. He does not regard them anymore. And then, of course, they receive uh, no respect at all from the people. So that's the effect and cause. That's what the chapter describes in terms of what came on the nation in the destruction at the hand of Babylon. I want to turn for a a couple of uh, moments of reflection on what this tells us about how we should view the church. And maybe before we turn to that, we should remember that the the sin that Jeremiah spoke of again and again in, in referring in, in the prophecy of Jeremiah and referring to the people is really a sin of presumption. This can't happen to us because we are God's people. The temple of the Lord is here. Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. That's Jeremiah 7 and and uh, nothing bad can happen to us. That presumption is what you might say ultimately led to their downfall because they were unwilling to consider the warnings of God's uh, hand coming against them. So the danger is that presumption leads to this utter worthlessness that we saw at the beginning. So they are precious sons of Zion, but they're just clay pots after the judgment that comes on them. So the question that uh, I'd like to reflect on in connection with that is, uh, are we grieved over the ruin of Joseph? So that's that verse in Amos uh, 6, Amos 6, verse 6, uh, that uh, David Dixon referred to. In the context there in, in Amos 6, Amos is prophesying his target is really the northern kingdom. And uh, he is especially in that context referring to the wealthy people. The wealthy people were so comfortable that they had no time to consider the spiritual and social uh, degradation, uh, spiritual and social uh, downfall of their own country. So that's what David Dixon is really asking when we read uh, Lamentations in that introductory quote. How do we respond? Are we grieved over the ruin of Joseph? Do we, to put it in more contemporary Christian terms, are we concerned about the condition of the church, uh, broadly speaking, in our day? Are we just concerned about our own affairs, or do we take to heart the suffering and the low condition of the church? So I want to give a a couple of examples, and I'd be interested to hear uh, your reflection on it. But uh, here's one sort of concrete example. So there was a book uh, written in 1973 by Morton H. Smith 
called How Has the Gold Become Dim? Yes, that's the first verse of uh, Lamentations 4. And it was a reflection on the declension in the southern Presbyterian church, so the mainline Presbyterian church in the south. It was the Presbyterian church in the U.S. And you have to get all those words aligned right or you're talking about someone else. It was it was the church that had uh, been formed really at the time of the Civil War uh, and the southern church is separate from the northern church. Now, it's not uh, really my place here to ask whether the initial point and formation of the Civil War was really so glorious for the Southern Church. But Morton Smith goes through and documents by the acts, like the specific acts of the church over a hundred years or so, how the Southern Church had declined from faithfulness to God. And this was really the documentation that uh, brought about the formation of the PCA. It wasn't called that initially, but uh, of the PCA in the 70s. By grieving over the low condition of the denomination in which they were and and seeing how the gold had become dim. Again, it's not really my my purpose here to say, uh, you know, what actually happened and uh, to give an evaluation of that case. I'm just giving that as an example of someone who, uh, of a group that reflected seriously on the condition of the church and sought to uh, bring about a remedy. There are lots of things that you could think about in connection with that. I'm just going to mention one that came up at our synod this last week. So synod approved a resolution uh, that uh, the churches, the congregations of the denomination, have a day of prayer and fasting in July. Uh, to pray for the RPCNA. And that especially rose out of this very severe and difficult <coughs> discipline case in uh, Lafayette, Indiana, the West Lafayette, Indiana, the Emanuel Reformed Presbyterian Church. But there was a case of uh, child sexual abuse and sort of the, all the resulting uh, actions from that. That's an example of being called to grieve over the ruin of Joseph, to consider our ways to think about our current situation and to uh, ask the Lord to hear and help us. So I'm going to pause here. I had one other application that's just pointing forward to the Messiah, but let me pause here and and see if you have thoughts either on the effect and cause or on uh, grieving over the ruin of Joseph. Uh, It's a really interesting way Amos put it. Any thoughts, uh, reflections so far? Dave. It's really difficult uh, in, to understand what kind of siege was against Jerusalem that would drive people to act the way they did during this time. It, it would be easy to discount uh, this historical event and, and maybe accuse writer of rhetorical flourish. Yeah. And to suggest that he was trying to make a point through exaggeration. And he probably understated the case. Yeah. Or at least its extent. You you don't get the full extent of what happened to Jerusalem during this time. Even though what he says is yeah, that's a very good point. So um, 
it's not an exaggeration of what happened. If you had a journalistic account of this, you wouldn't want to read it. I mean, it would be awful, absolutely awful. And the, you know, saying that compassionate women boiled their children, he's not saying, oh, they aren't really compassionate. He's saying no woman would do this kind of thing in, uh, in normal circumstances. This is how bad it was. Yeah, good. Liz, you had your hand up? Or? Okay. Um, in response to what you said about uh, the uh, graphic uh, nature was expressed in of the description, um, if it were on NPR or CNN today, there would be a caution. This yeah. is not something right. you want to let your kids see. Yeah. This will be disturbing to you. It may um, trigger. Sure, that was really good. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I'm, I have to think some more about this, but my initial knee-jerk um, thought about um, how to um, apply this is such that um, you know, in what way are in what way is the American church in the U.S. I'm not talking about Canada or mm -hmm. um, Mexico or the U.S. Um, in what way does uh, our involvement in reaching the unreached in the world reflect confrontation? Uh huh. That's a good question. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about that. Yeah, that's very good. If you look at the statistics about how much money the American church sinks into reaching the genuinely unreached in the world, the 1040 million, uh -huh. the amount of money that goes there to support people yeah. who are reaching out to the unreached yeah. That's good. Thank you. That's the kind of reflection I'm hoping for. Thank you. Okay. And we can talk later. Yeah. <laughs> Dan. I know you want to get moving, so I'll be brief, but the tension that I I think I've expressed a number of times that I have of how, how much to pay attention to the world, 24-hour news cycle, mm -hmm. social media, we have all these ways of gaining information and how much I've benefited by kind of cutting a lot of that out, saying I I had enough problems within 10 miles of where we're sitting right now that have consumed kind of my whole life focus on the ministry here. And yet, seeing these other areas where I know I, I need to pay attention to what's happening you know, with our, our brothers and sisters around the world, there's missions or the plight of the church there. There's there's always this tension to say, no, I, I don't want to be completely headed in the center. There's a difference between focus and head in the sand. Yeah. Especially when it comes to church. So. And the news that comes from the media isn't filtered to help you make, you know, that choice, right? Yeah. It's, or, yeah. yeah. Filtered isn't the right word, but yeah. That's right. Good.
So I'd like to then turn to the third point, the righteous blood shed. And here I have in mind the last part of verse 13. It's a, a striking thing how Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel takes this up. So I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew 23. I gave the reference there, Matthew 23, uh, beginning at verse 34. I'll read the beginning of verse 34 of Matthew 23. This is uh, our Lord speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, pronouncing woes on them. He says, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. If you, I'm not going to be able to give all of the evidence of this, but in verse uh, 35, Jesus is alluding to this statement in Lamentations 4 about the shedding of the blood of the righteous. Uh, Some keys to that are the reference to the destruction of the temple in the context here, immediately after this paragraph, beginning at verse 37, Jesus laments over Jerusalem and he warns of the coming destruction. In the next chapter, he predicts the destruction of the temple. And even if you turn over to chapter 27, uh, Judas says he has shed innocent blood. Uh, Pilate's wife says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And then Pilate says he's innocent of the blood of this man. And the Jewish people take on themselves the blood of the one they have shed. So I'm not going to give you the complete background. But it's, I think it's clear that the Holy Spirit uh, here is intending us to see in the crucifixion of Christ the greater, uh, the greater shedding of the blood by the religious leaders and the greater condemnation that would come on them in the destruction of the temple 70 years after Christ. And it uh, points us to an important uh, truth, which is that uh, not only did Christ suffer, not only was he the suffering one in lamentations, but he took on himself as an innocent one, as the just one, as the righteous one, the wrath that was due to the people of God. So it's a really uh, fascinating connection, which I don't really have time to uh, consider, but I think uh, we've seen again and again in Lamentations the the solidarity of uh, Christ with his people and the sufferings even then. But now in uh, Matthew, we see the connection directly with Christ and the shedding of the innocent one. But uh, even as we say that, I want to make one other uh, point, which we could have made maybe elsewhere in Lamentations, but it's especially appropriate here. Uh, Lamentations refers again and again to the sins of the people bringing on them the judgment of God. But Lamentation is also important for those who suffer as just people, as those who suffer as righteous. Christ suffered in that way. He didn't suffer for his own sins. And that's important for us to consider uh, when we think about the persecution of believers. And 
we should see them in the light of the righteous blood shed that uh, Lamentations refers to or Christ refers to. So I just put up a quote here from, I didn't say, this is Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there Paul mentions persecution, and then strikingly in the middle of it, to confirm what he says in verse 36, he quotes from a psalm. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. It's Psalm 44, which is a corporate lament, but it's a corporate lament in which the people say they're suffering for God's sake. They uh, are not suffering for their own sins, as it were, but because of their identification with uh, God. Or to put it in New Testament terms, they take in themselves the sufferings of Christ. So I I want to bring that point up because uh, when we read Lamentations, we do focus, as we did especially in chapter 3, on the individual and also on the call to repentance. But Lamentations also encourages us to think of those who suffer in identification with Christ, to suffer for the name of Christ, for his sake, and to, when we reflect on the ruin of the house of Joseph, to think of those who suffer for righteousness' sake, And by the way, making the connection with the shedding of righteous blood, it also reminds us to pray for the conversion of the Jews, the ones who who said his blood be on us. We should pray that they would be converted, that his blood would be counted for them as those who were uh, justified in Christ. So there's a lot more that can be said about that. But uh, let me move on to the next uh, part of the chapter. I think I'm not going to be able to finish uh, Lamentations, but. Let me me try to at least finish the next section, and then I'll see if you have reflections on the shedding of righteous blood. So let's go back to our outline here. Uh, The the next section in uh, the outline as we have it is in verses 17 through 20. And the our end has come is a quotation from uh, that section at the end of verse 18. And here the imagery is this, again, sort of rapidly moving uh, imagery that we've seen elsewhere in Lamentations. It's really describing the breaching of the walls, the Babylonians coming into the city, the uh, attempt of the king to flee. So remember in the history, Zedekiah and some of his uh, troops tried to run away from the city. But they were caught and uh, he was uh, blinded after his sons were killed before his eyes. That's what's being recounted here down to verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits. But there's also this pathetic beginning uh, to that in verse 17. Our eyes failed us watching vainly for our help. Uh, This refers to their trust in the Egyptians. We saw this in chapter 1, these lovers who didn't come to them. And uh, this is a reference again. I put up uh, one passage in Jeremiah 37, but actually this is, something you can see elsewhere, this vain hope that the Egyptians would come to their aid and deliver them. Uh, Our eyes failed us. There's this uh, Hebrew. uh, 
in our watching, we watched, okay? They were just looking and looking for deliverance. But they acknowledged that nation couldn't save us. Once again, is that God driving them to hope in no one else but themselves. And instead of going through the details any further on that, I just want to emphasize the last part of that. They look to the king as the breath of their nostrils, as the anointed of the Lord. Surely he would deliver them. Was that a, a bad hope? And the short answer is, it's complicated. <laughs> so uh, Calvin, uh, there's a long quotation from Calvin uh, that reflects on what this verse says. This verse, uh, verse 20, referring to the centrality of the hope of the nation and the anointed of the Lord, does have biblical background because the Messiah was promised. The Messiah would be the deliverer. But the problem was that they didn't look forward to the Son of God to come. So Calvin says, these high terms in which the posterity of David were spoken of properly belong to Christ only. For David was not the life of the people, like that's, you know, that's what they're saying here, he was our life, except as he was the type of Christ and represented his person. Hence the truth, the reality is to be sought in no other but in Christ. And hence, and we hence learn that the church is dead and is like a maimed body when separated from its head. If then we desire to live before God, we must come to Christ, who is really the spirit or the breath of our nostrils. Then he returns to uh, what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah means that the favor of God was, as it were, extinguished when the king was taken away, because the royal dignity was, as it were, a sure pledge of the grace and favor of God. So there was a reason why they placed their hopes in the line of David, but they failed to look to the Messiah to come and trusted in Zedekiah, who in the end wasn't in the line of the Messiah, right? It was, it was Jeconiah instead, who had already been taken uh, to Babylon. But I think this is a, a beautiful way of reminding us that the, the ultimate deliverance that Lamentations looks for actually is in the promised one, the, the breath of our nostrils. It is in the Lord Jesus, the one who's, Innocent blood was shed uh, by the religious leaders and yet would in the end be the one to deliver them. Okay, I said there was hope at the end of the chapter, but I didn't get there. So I'm going to stop here. Uh, Lord willing, we'll take up the last part of the chapter in uh, chapter five, which is shorter. So maybe we can do it uh, the next time we we have this study. Uh, Any comments or questions on, uh, so we talked about especially this uh, shedding of righteous blood and uh, the the end has come, or the class as a whole. Any any thoughts or reflections? Uh, Dave. Yeah. Really shows the utter futility of trying to outrun God's wrath. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's all the futility is all encapsulated in breaking out of the city and thinking you're gonna you're gonna beat the Babylonians, who whom God made to be swifter than the eagles of the heavens. You're not gonna get away. You can't escape the wrath of God. That's a really good point. Thank you.
Other thoughts? Okay. So let's close in prayer.